thank you for tuning in today for this special episode on The Source. I'm your host, Zan Raza. Today, I'll be having an in-depth and contextual discussion with two guests on the war in Ukraine and the larger context. Joining us is journalist and lawyer Dimitri Riskaris, who ran for the Green Party leadership in Canada in 2020, finishing second, and activist and physician Jill Stein, who was the Green Party presidential candidate in 2012 and 2016. This panel was organized by Pliberty.org, a free speech advocacy group. They're uh, hosting many interesting interviews with guests such as Norm Chomsky and many more. So check out uh, the link in the description for more videos with them. Dimitri, Jill, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be here. Honored to be here and uh, honored to be with Jill Stein. All right. Like, well, I'll say the same about Dimitri Lascaris. <laughs> I want to begin this interview with a very simple and basic question. How should we understand the war in Ukraine? Jill, let us start with you. To my mind, the war in Ukraine is really a microcosm of this crisis of militarism that uh, we face in the United States and really around the world, where so much of our resources are going into uh, the military and so much money uh, is concentrated into that industry, and it's very much uh, an expression of what Dwight Eisenhower warned at the end of his presidency, that a military-industrial complex would be taking over. And that's a, a critical problem that we face here uh, in this country in particular. But more broadly, I think the war in Ukraine is um uh it it is a danger to the people of the united states the people of ukraine above all um the people of europe and really around the world because of its global implications and its uh progression towards uh nuclear conflict so this is uh, a danger to us all and it's also impoverishing us all, destabilizing the economy and so on. So it's really a crisis of enormous magnitude that's very much related to all the other problems that we are struggling with to meet our needs, our critical unyet, unmet human needs for for food. You know, the crisis of, of hunger has really skyrocketed with the disruptions and the uh, inflation triggered by the war, uh, whether you're looking at the crisis of the climate, whether you are looking at the crisis of healthcare and housing and our ability to pay for human needs. It's really a massive, uh, ubiquitous crisis. And all of that really compels us to fix this and to prioritize uh, a ceasefire and negotiations as soon as humanly possible. Dimitri, go ahead. I could more, I would uh, emphasize that uh, it's astonishing how little we have heeded the extraordinary warning of President Eisenhower at the end of his tenure as President of the United States. Uh, not only did the American people fail to heed that warning, but we of the West, all peoples of the West, we are now all hostage to the military industrial complex. Uh, it has become a cancer in Western society. Uh, and I'm going to put a somewhat more geopolitical spin on this. I believe that tragically for the Ukrainian people, their country is the front line in a battle between those who want to perpetuate an era 
of U.S. government global hegemony. And at the end of the day, I think the U.S. government today is effectively uh, controlled by a very wealthy elite, a Western-based elite. And on the other hand, you have rising countries and socioeconomically, militarily rising countries like China, uh, Russia, and India, who no longer uh, are prepared to uh, be servants at the table of the U.S. hegemon, and they demand to be respected as equal players. Uh, and there are a lot of people in the global south, as we've seen, uh, who support this movement towards a multipolar world. Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a uh, speaking tour about the Ukraine war, and I, I emphasize the fact that almost nobody in Africa has chosen to sanction Russia or send arms to Ukraine. Almost nobody in Latin America has chosen to do either of those things. Almost nobody in Asia has chosen to do either of those things. And that's because they're fed up with Western hegemony and Western arrogance, I think. And I, I, again, I can't, I can't stress enough that the, it's the Ukrainian people, first and foremost, who are the victims of this uh, world historical struggle that we're witnessing today. One of the shocking, if not fascinating, developments that resulted from this war is that anyone in Germany, and I presume it's the same in Canada and the US, that questions NATO's narrative is immediately seen by political and media establishment as promoting Russian or Putin propaganda or talking points. You both have been labeled as such as well, given your perspective. Can you share us your experience on why you think this tactic is employed? Dimitri, why don't you start? I think it's directly related to the nature of the struggle we're witnessing. This is from the perspective of the perpetuation of U.S. power, Western hegemony. This is existential. Uh, they realize that the gig is up. That era is over or on the verge of being terminated by rising states in the east and uh, in the global south. And uh, they are determined, they're hell bent to stop this from happening. They want to maintain firmly in control. And uh, because the stakes are so high, they've unleashed a wave of unprecedented McCarthyism upon those of us who question the wisdom of this war and the true motives of Western governments. Uh, I think that it's really just uh, emblematic of how important they view this struggle uh, to maintain their power. Uh, and we in the West, we have to continue those of us. There are many of us, I, you know, I, I, the other day I drew up a list of all the people like Dr. Stein, Noam Chomsky, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, you know, John Mearsheimer and so forth, eminent experts in their fields who are saying effectively what we're saying. Uh, and if you look carefully at those who are being... <laughs> from the mainstream discussion, the peace activists, the dissenters, it's quite a, a formidable group of intellectuals. And, you know, we have to find a way to get their message out to the people. Can you share us, Dimitri, uh, let's stick to that. Can you share us uh, an experience that you might have had uh, personally in Canada, where um, you were also labeled as a Russian propagandist or something like that of a sort? As we, you and I have discussed, Zane, I was recently in Russia. Uh, and I went to Crimea. In the middle of the trip, I was contacted by uh, a reporter, a Ukraine-based reporter of the National Post, which is the flagship newspaper of Canada's largest newspaper publisher, uh, Post Media. Post Media, by the way, is, even though it's Canadian nominally, it's controlled by a pro-Trump hedge fund based in Connecticut. Uh, and he wanted to interview me on my reasons for going to Russia. Uh, I insisted as a condition of him interviewing me that I be permitted to uh, uh, record the conversation and that he give me his consent to publish the recording uh, because I anticipated a hit piece and that's what I got. On the front page of the National Post on a Monday morning, they announced that I had gone to Russia to whitewash uh, Vladimir Putin's crimes. 
but I had fortunately the recording, I published it on my website, and I think uh, that told the real story of the conversation that I had with him. Jill, uh, talk about uh, any experience that you might have had similar where you've been, you've been quite critical about the West's role in Ukraine and have you faced any lashback? Can you share us your experience and also why you think that this tactic is employed? I was in uh, Moscow in 2015 actually uh, to participate in a conference uh, sponsored by RT, but it was an international conference and an opportunity to talk to media from all over the world. Um, and uh, the focus was very much on, uh, the, the name of the conference actually was Frenemies, you know, and, and it was a really interesting and frank discussion about the ways in which our various countries of uh, Russia and Western Europe and, uh, and the US How are we friends and how are we uh, competitors and how are we enemies? And, you know, it was a fascinating discussion. But for me, the reason to be there was to really uh, put forward the three fundamentals of what was about to become my presidential campaign, uh, which was uh, the, the essential, uh, urgent, dire necessity for a global Green New Deal. Uh, for a peace offensive in the Middle East uh, and for nuclear disarmament and a nuclear weapons ban. And, you know, uh, as John Kennedy said, we must not negotiate out of fear and we must not fear to negotiate. And I was there to enhance that dialogue. And in fact, going way back um, as sort of my first uh, political experience in a way as a medical student, I was very involved with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility and International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And it was all about citizen-to-citizen -citizen contact across borders to um, uh, uh, decompress the incredible dangers of, of, of the Cold War. This was like uh, back in the uh, early, actually, uh, it was before medical school, it was like early, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, you know, so I was very familiar with the concept of citizen to citizen contact across borders and how profound that could be, because that's where a lot of the momentum for uh, some of the very critical uh, nuclear treaties, um, you know, what was established. So, uh, you know, that, that was part of what was motivating me to go there again um, and to help just promote that dialogue and person to person contact. Um, and you know, the press said nothing about this trip to Moscow until I got the nomination. And then suddenly, you know, this picture, which was sort of cut a little bit, and it made it look like there was a very small, intimate uh, dinner party going on, which was not the case at all. In fact, those who spoke Russian never spoke a word of English, you know, I mean, it was a complete sort of narrative that was concocted around this. And then a story about my being uh, there to make deals, cut deals, um, outright false information uh, saying that my trip had been sponsored by Russia. You know, in fact, we had not taken a penny in money, very, you know, very uh, mindful that we did not want to, Uh, create any uh, apparent conflicts of interest and so on as we were entering into the campaign. And you can't take foreign money when you're running a political campaign anyhow. you know. So it was just a massive smear campaign that was unleashed at that point, which 
um, leads me to a kind of a higher order point here about um, McCarthyism, which is that it's not only, you know, militarism and censorship, it's also political repression. And militarism in itself, to my mind, is very much a part of, you know, an increasingly sort of a proto-fascist government organization where money and power is extremely concentrated into the hands of very few. Uh, you know, sort of a rapacious oligarchy is is um, you know is is rolling out um, in virtually every dimension of our lives. It's not only the crisis of militarism; it's a crisis of crushing inequality and uh, climate collapse. And it's it's really a crisis in virtually all dimensions of our democracy, including the uh, assault really on our First Amendment rights, including our rights to free speech, a free press, um, uh, and uh, the right of protest, uh, as well as uh, not First Amendment strictly, that is uh, the right to privacy. You know, all of those are really under assault right now, and they kind of you know, they they converge in a way which is unbelievably dangerous. So my experience as a political person, uh, it's it's sort of indivisible the way in which, you know, in which we are silenced, you know, and look at what's happening to the Uhuru uh, African Socialist Party in the U.S. right now, where they are really being set up and framed and um, at risk for being uh, incarcerated for 15 years, mainly for being themselves. Um, you know, that 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 these these different dimensions are all converging into political repression as well as uh, censorship and and propaganda, which is the you know the flip side of the abuse of our First Amendment rights. And so it's just so important um, that we continue to speak out because it's like, you know, the saying first they came for, you know, for the socialists or the gypsies, you know, but I was not a gypsy or a socialist. So I said nothing, you know, and then pretty soon there is no one. So it's really important for us to stand up and just, you know, so it's not to create an impression of hopelessness, you know, to my mind, there is more uprising and fight back going on now than I ever uh, have experienced really in my life. And that list of, you know, luminaries that I think you rattled off at the start there, Zane, you know, of people who are standing up right now and who are incredible, you know, Jeffrey Sachs is, it's like unbelievable, you know, kind of what he is saying and his complete um, fearlessness. And I think we all need to be inspired by that. Courage is, um, uh, contagious, and you know we need to keep carrying that forward. If you look at polls, people are not, people are not happy with the political establishment right now, nor with the mainstream media that's conducting this you know insane uh, propaganda campaign on our own citizens and and censorship as well and social media. You know people are furious, and in the U.S. it's. Uh, what should we say, the scorn and disdain for mainstream media is off the charts. And it's really the lead among whatever it was, 30 or 40 uh, modern nations that were all polled about a, a year back. You know, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's hard times, that's for sure. But all the makings of transformative change 
are here uh, now and we need to just, you know, keep our eyes on the prize and keep going. I want to dig deeper into this uh, environment that I talked about where people are being labeled left, right and center uh, for being uh, Russian propagandists, etc. For uh, my organization, it is essential to remain independent, critical and avoid falling into Western or even Russian propaganda as I believe all governments carry out some form of deception to achieve their political goals, always cloaking it behind the greater good for society. Um, on the internet, you get this feel or vibe that this war in Ukraine is sort of a football game where one side is cheering for the other. Uh, instead of talking about the real human lives that are at stake here and potential nuclear war that could get triggered if this war goes on. Uh, we've been very focused on being critical of the US and its allies. However, I want to look at this from a different angle now. How do you differentiate between authentic and independent criticism and Russian propaganda? Dimitri, why don't you start? You look at the historical record. Uh, you know, I don't take anything that anybody involved in this conflict has to say at face value, whether it's the Russian government, uh, the uh, Canadian government, my own government, the United States government, Britain, Ukraine. And I want to just say something in particular about Ukraine. Uh, you know, Joseph Burrell, the foreign effectively the foreign minister of the EU, said recently that if uh, the EU saw, stopped arming Ukraine, it would fall within a matter of days. And then the, the, the German defense minister, Boris Pistorius, a couple of days later went even further and said, if we stop arming Ukraine, it will disappear tomorrow. Now, let's think about that. I'm, I'm a lawyer, and I think about this in terms of motive, what kind of motives this creates. If you're a government, the Ukrainian government, and you are... Uh, entirely dependent for your very existence upon external support of foreign governments, you're going to do everything you can because your lives depend upon it to inflame public opinion against your enemy. So the Ukrainian government and any government in the Ukrainian government's position would have this very same incentive. Uh, they have an incentive to inflame public opinion in the West against Russia. So even in the case of Ukraine, we treat their claims in the media as being effectively sacrosanct when in fact, they have a powerful incentive to mislead us about what's actually happening in this war. Which, whichever source of information we're talking about, we test it against the historical record. So I'll give a simple example. We're told uh, by the Russian government that there was a coup in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, I don't take them uh, that claim at face value. What I do is I, I do things like I listen to the recording of Victoria Newland, uh, senior State Department official, and Jeffrey Pyatt, the former ambassador to Ukraine, in which Ms. Newland chooses the next prime minister of Ukraine, Yevgeny Yateniek. And I just ask people to think about this for a moment. Imagine that the facts were inverted, and this was not a conversation between them, but it was a conversation between the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, and the Russian ambassador to the United States in 2016, when Trump was contesting the election against Clinton, and you heard Lavrov say, as Newland said, Trump is the guy. Would anybody, if that recording came to light, doubt for one second that the American government, that the, the Russian Federation had at a bare minimum aggressively meddled in the internal affairs of the United States and more plausibly orchestrated or helped to orchestrate a coup? But when the United States government does it in Ukraine, even though the evidence is staring us in the face, uh, we deny there was a coup altogether. And even George Friedman, the former CEO of Stratfor, which is closely tied, of course, to the U.S. military industrial complex, in a 2014 interview with Commerçant, said that this was the most blatant coup in history. 
So I don't trust Vladimir Putin or any leader to tell me the truth. I look at the historical record and it seems pretty damn clear to me that there was a coup in Ukraine in 2014 and the U.S. government had a lot to do with it. Jill, how do you differentiate for yourself between authentic independent criticism and Russian propaganda? Um, you know, like Dmitry, I take nothing at face value. And I am mindful of one of the famous quotes of uh, Mike Pompeo as, um, what was his position? I think he was Secretary of the State at the time, and he was referring, this was in a public uh conference uh, at one of the uh, Texas University branches. And he basically said, you know, the, that our, our motto, he had been head of the CIA, our motto is we do not lie, cheat and steal. And then he went on to say, well, actually, we lie, cheat and steal. We have whole courses in it. Ha ha ha. You know, which got lots of laughs, but it was remarkable. It's probably the truest thing he has ever said. And he's not just speaking for the security services of the United States. I mean, this is what uh, security services, uh, you know, and and press operations for all governments do. And we have to assume that they are all lying until proven otherwise. And what I find most helpful for myself is to simply hear both sides, hear both sides of the story and, you know, take a look at their evidence and just the nature of, of the story. And it's like, you can smell a rat uh, when it's a rat, um, not always, but much of the time. And what's so critical in my view is not that we have to spend, you know, for everyday people, it's hard to get the time to do the research, but just hearing all sides, which is why the heavy hand of censorship is so intense right now, because the war machine does not want you to hear the other side, because simply to hear the other side undermines uh, war propaganda. So, you know, I would just really encourage people to seek out um, the uh, points of view that are being uh, censored and red labeled. And it's very important. You know, there's there's that censorship uh, organization, uh, supposedly private. What is it called? I don't remember the name offhand, but it's, it's attaching a red label to um, organizations like uh, Consortium News, for example, or Mint Press, um, and just trying to get them out of the way by sort of decertifying them and, and, you know, giving them the scarlet letter. And it's just so important to hear what they're saying and then think about it. And, and then you begin to educate yourself. And, um, you know, it's like when the war in Iraq started and there was all the mania about uh, weapons of mass destruction and, you know, uh, Public opinion really turned just as time went on and people were able to re-examine uh, the arguments and the war was not going the way that uh, the warmonger said it would, which is certainly happening in Ukraine. Um, you know, so just, you know, truth will have out. If a discussion is allowed, truth is going to come out, as well as, you know, the consequences of the war and this just off the charts military spending is also really hitting home and public opinion is really shifting 
in a big way. So just by allowing uh, democracy to um, to take place and for a democratic discussion and debate to be held uh, is going to continue to propel public opinion uh, in a higher direction. Uh, another criticism uh, that independent media networks or experts such as yourself receive is that uh, we only criticize the West and never Russia. Do you think it is essential that we criticize all sides when it comes to a war and conflict, and in this case, uh, Russia, uh, in order to meet the standards of fairness? How do you view this criticism? Jill, let's start with you. Uh, I think it's really important um, that things be put in perspective. But yes, all parties need to be held accountable. And the responsible... Um, you know, commentators that I've heard, whether you're talking about Noam Chomsky or Chris Hedges or um, uh, uh, or Jeffrey Sachs, for example, they always acknowledge to my ear that, uh, you know, there are um, Russia is not above criticism and is not above um, uh, blame, if you want to frame it that way. But they're trying to put the blame and responsibility in perspective. So if I can use my own words here and how I try to wrap this up so that, you know, people grasp that, yes, uh, Russia's invasion of, or special operation, whatever you want to call it, uh, Russians assault on the Eastern provinces of Ukraine and then beyond the Eastern provinces uh, is arguably illegal uh, and is murderous. A lot of people are dying because of this. Um, on the other hand, this conflict did not begin in February of 2022. And that was simply the latest phase of what had begun in 2014 after the US uh, supported coup uh, with lots of arms flowing in and training for the Ukrainians, you know, we're to blame too here, by the way, um, that you you had this conflict unleashed in which some 14,000 people uh, had been killed uh, in the Eastern provinces. And that was like, if you date the war or the conflict beginning as, as 2014, but arguably you can go back much further to um, the late 90s when NATO began to move east in violation of the promise that was made to uh, uh, Gorbachev that, that NATO was not going to move one inch to the east. And on that basis, Germany had been rearmed and reunited and so on. So that was a violation, but you can go back before then as well. The US has been expressing basically its military doctrine of full spectrum dominance which is really an outright declaration of war against all countries who dare to be economic or military competitors with the United States. And that policy has been restated many times, certainly since 1991, but there are, are, are predecessors to it as well. So it's very clear, you know, or you can look at the end of the Second World War when the uh, CIA brought Ukrainian Nazis back to the US and uh, instigated a program of uh, basically sabotage against Russians uh, from within Ukraine and perhaps beyond Ukraine too, I don't recall. But this is documented in official US 
uh, documents that which were part of an effort to uh, hold Nazis accountable after the Second World War. And as part of this effort, which was funded and uh, instigated by Congress, um, the historical record was published and this material was held back uh, because it was so um, uh, just like shocking and jaw dropping uh, that the US was collaborating, that uh, the CIA was collaborating with Ukrainian Nazis, brought them here uh, to give them safe harbor and from an office in New York City, were running sabotage in Ukraine uh, against Russians. So how is that not, you know, a, a a part of this ongoing conflict, call it a war or, you know, an irregular war or whatever you want to call it. But there are very deep roots here. And, and while it's abhorrent that Russian troops and, you know, air uh, offenses and so on are, are killing people in Ukraine, and they are, and all war is to be condemned and abhorred. And all war is illegal and uh, murderous, all war. But the uh, the war being conducted here by Russia is a very small piece of a much larger war, which has clearly been instigated and uh, propelled forward by the U.S. Uh, for decades. Because while people are being killed in Ukraine, you know, the uh, number of deaths that have resulted from the uh, from the U.S. so-called war on terror post 9-11 is now estimated to be somewhere around five or six million from that war alone. You know, and then you have all the other wars, 68 uh, regime changes, uh, interventions since the Second World War, uh, you know, from Vietnam to Chile to, you know, all over the place. But we have blood on our hands. We have we have just an ocean of blood on our hands. And Martin Luther King summarized it well when he said that uh, my government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And that was in the 1960s. And it's even worse now. And it is wrong, in my view, to try to extract the conflict in Ukraine post-2022 and ignore this much larger uh, mountain of, of murder uh, taking place propelled by the United States and instigated over and over again by the United States. According to the Congressional Research Service, uh, U.S. military forces have actually uh, conducted 351, I believe it is, um, military interventions in other countries in the past three decades alone. This is the problem. We are not going to solve this problem and its dire consequences for our economies around the world and for our survival and the actual physical danger of war and the um uh, you know, the progression to nuclear conflict, which should be front and center in everyone's mind right now, strictly focusing on the latest chapter of this latest conflict uh, in which the U.S. is engaged, completely ignores uh, the crisis that we should all feel like we are in the target hairs of Ukraine above all, but all of us are in the target hairs and we need to fix this. Dimitri, how do you view this? Uh, do we have to criticize all sides in order to meet the standards of fairness? So I, I hear that argument a lot, Zane, and uh, like Dr. Stein, I, I have so much to say about it, I don't even know where to begin. 
But let me try by pointing out, first of all, that, um, you know, I've written dozens of articles about this war. I've done dozens of interviews about this war. Uh, the very first one that I did, very first article I wrote, which you can find on my website, and, and it's called the, the Art of Peace Requires Us to See the World Through the Eyes of Our Enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, the first part of that article is me approaching the justification given for the invasion through the eyes of a lawyer and examining the legality, uh, as I see it, under international law of the Russian military intervention in February of last year. And the conclusion that I came to was that it was likely a violation of the United Nations, Nations Charter. And like all war, as Dr. Stein said, it should be condemned. I condemn all war un unequivocally. Uh, and I did that. Now, it's true uh, that I also, in that article, spent quite a bit of time talking about some of the things that Dr. Stein just talked about, the history of the conflict and the provocations, the endless decades-long provocations of the Russian government and the Soviet government. And, um, you know, I did that for two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't know how you can solve a problem uh, without, first of all, identifying the causes of the problem. And secondly, even within our own justice system, you know, somebody commits a crime, they're convicted. You've heard probably, uh, laypersons have heard of something called victim impact statements. Uh, they've heard of, you know, if you know anything about the criminal justice system, uh, the accused, uh, the guilty parties, uh, friends, relatives can come forward and testify about how things that were happening in that person's life, which precipitated criminal behavior and so forth. Courts take this into account in determining what the appropriate response is of the criminal justice system to the crime. Uh, so this is not new to Western society, to Western legal systems. This is fundamental to our legal system. Are there extenuating circumstances? And that's one thing that we, I think, it behooves us to do. Um, but looking more broadly at this whole question, and I, I wrote another article, which I entitled perhaps uh, undiplomatically, uh, A Whataboutist's Response to the Useful Idiots of the Anglo-American Empire. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to have to say this, but the people out there on the left in the progressive community who are running around, you know, focusing their ire upon the Russian Federation and the Chinese government, all the official enemies of the United States, are giving ammunition to the imperialists and the regime change scam artists who have taken over our society and our politics. Mm -hmm. When our voices on the left are directed at the official enemies of the United States, we are exploited and manipulated by the imperialists to pursue their agenda. What do they do? They look at us and they say, look at these leftists out there criticizing the Russian Federation. Surely everything that we're doing to undermine it, its government, must be justified. Well, I refuse to make myself a useful idiot of the Anglo-American empire, number one. Number two, uh, my goal as a journalist and as a public commentator, I think, is to talk about the things that are not being spoken about in the mainstream discourse. I'm trying to reintroduce some balance into the conversation. We hear about the evils of the Russian government and the Chinese government nonstop. We have been bombarded relentlessly with toxicity about the Russian government and the Chinese government and other official enemies of the West. We're not told about extenuating circumstances. For example, why do over 80% of the Russians, according to Levada, support Vladimir Putin? Well, take a look at World Bank statistics, look at the unemployment rate, look at the poverty rate, look at the longevity of Russians over the last 20 years, and compare the way Russians lived and the conditions under which they lived in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin to where they are today. There are objective reasons for that support. Yes, there's propaganda. That is a factor. 
But Russians who lived through the 90s and the horrors of that era and the kleptocracy of that era look quite fondly upon the rule of Vladimir Putin because things improved dramatically for them, the vast majority of them. These are things that are not being said in the Western media and it behooves us to say them. Uh, and the last thing I want to say is, and this is something that Noam Chomsky has said far more eloquently than I ever could, you know, this government here in Canada purports to speak in my name. Uh, the Russian government doesn't purport to speak in my name. I'm responsible for my government. I get to vote here. I have a right to contribute to political parties here. And my government is complicit in some of the worst crimes going on in the world today and in a policy towards the Ukraine war that threatens the future of our children. Uh, I don't think that, you know, the Russian government gives a damn about what I have to say, but maybe just maybe I can have a positive impact on what my own government is doing. Not just in your name, but also with your taxes. Um, so I would like to divert the conversation to another area where our name and taxes are being used. Uh, the increased militarization that we are seeing in the West. Uh, for example, Germany established a 100 billion euro fund to boost its military, whereas uh, French President Macron has called for a European Union air defense system to protect us from a Russian attack. We also saw one of the largest air exercises in NATO's history under German leadership that involved 10,000 military personnel, 250 aircraft from 25 countries. The scenario simulated a military exercise where Germany got attacked from the east and in, invoked Article 5 to call for its assistance. Furthermore, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg recently met with German Chancellor after this exercise and stated, let me quote him here, from my own experience as a politician, as a Minister of Finance and Prime Minister, I know that it's never easy to increase defense spending because if you spend more, on defense, it's something less, there's less for healthcare, for education, for all important things. But the reality is that when we live in a more dangerous world, we just have to pay the price or invest in more defense. Because without peace and security, all other things we're striving for, climate change, prosperity, we will not be able to address them if we don't ensure peace and security. Dimitri, how do you assess the statement by the end Stoltenberg? Should peace and security receive more priority than social spending? Well, I, I contest the premise of the question. <laughs> we're, we're not enhancing our peace and security by military spending. We're undermining our peace and security. You know, every time we develop a new weapon system, every time we place uh, missiles, you know, closer and closer to Russia, potentially nuclear-tipped missiles, we're creating a danger for our society. We are cre creating a potential for, uh, uh, you know, a nuclear holocaust the ultimate catastrophe befalling humanity. And so, in fact, we're not making ourselves more secure by this military spending. We're making ourselves less secure. We're creating hostility, tension, distrust. Uh, and secondly, you know, fundamentally, I don't know how anybody with a straight face, and I have to say this about, uh, you know, the German Green Party, even though I am a green, a lifelong green, uh, that these policies which the German Green Party are supporting are consistent with the core values of the Green Party. Uh, those core, core values include sustainability, and we know just how destructive to the environment the military-industrial complex is, and nonviolence. Nonviolence is at the heart of who we are as Greens. Uh, and those, those, the, the beauty of those core values of the Green Party is that they enhance our security, not only our prosperity, not only our humanity, but our security. 
we need to dial down the military spending to make our world a safer place, not ratchet it up. Jill, would you like to address that? Is peace and security more important than social spending? Yeah, I, I likewise uh, reject the premise here that we're talking about uh, security uh, and peace. You know, weapons do not uh, create peace. Weapons create more war. And, you know, this policy of $115 billion and counting spent, uh, you know, poured into Ukraine, the majority of which is funding uh, weapons and military training. Uh, you know, the notion that that is making things more peaceful. I mean, this is just pouring uh, gasoline on a fire which is already exploding and threatens to engulf us all. Uh, the nuclear risks here cannot be uh, overstated. There is a misconception. I just want to say a word about that, uh, which is that there's a misconception that a nuclear war would be over there. You know, and nuclear wars don't happen over there. Uh, you know, the explosion might, but the consequences, which is where, you know, the real um, danger and destruction is that you unleash nuclear winter. And it doesn't take much to do that. And nuclear winter, you know, public education so badly needs to happen around this because you have our, uh, you know, our, our misleaders, I don't want to call them leaders, I'll call them misleaders are, you know, are recklessly, you know, playing a game of nuclear chicken here and discounting the potential to trigger, you know, an exchange of so-called tactical nuclear weapons. Well, tactical nuclear weapons includes weapons up to the size and far beyond, actually, the Hiroshima uh, and Nagasaki bombings, which killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in, a, uh, in one fell swoop. And with with new, you, it only takes an exchange of about a hundred or so of those tactical level nuclear weapons to trigger a really massive nuclear winter that could kill off, uh, you know, approaching a billion people, and then go beyond that quickly. And and the problem is once you begin with nuclear exchanges, it's very hard to stop the the slippery slope, and you've just ratcheted up the conflict into the nuclear zone. And it doesn't take, you know, the, the way that nuclear weapons are targeted these days, it's believed there's a lot of secrecy surrounding that, but it's believed um, by, you know, experts who follow this stuff. And I'm quoting actually from a, an article, a report by International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, who are some of the you know, people who've been following this stuff uh, for decades. According to their analysis, um, cities now, major cities are typically targeted with the equivalent of like 20 megatons worth of explosive. And that's not from a single bomb, but it's from a couple of them. And, and cities are now targeted by several, um, by several missiles and, 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 and several bombs. That alone hitting one city at the current level of, of um, firepower uh, would be enough to kill off something like 2 billion people, you know, almost half the world's population would die from the nuclear winter. And nuclear winter is when debris gets kicked up, it goes up into the upper atmosphere, um, you know, 
the temperature that is reached like within a millionth of a second is uh, millions of degrees, like as hot as the sun for miles surrounding the area of explosion. I mean, people need to know the details of what happens here because it will really, you know, put um, uh, fear and loathing into your, you know, in, in, in bring it into focus about how urgently we need to shut down this whole system that is driving us recklessly towards that. And you have things like public service announcements in, in New York City that say, you know, in the event of a nuclear explosion, go inside, you know, change your clothes, wash off, and stay inside until someone contacts you. And that may be a while because your, your healthcare providers may all be dead, you know. They're just like these ludicrous statements. It, it's like duck and cover back in, you know, the 50s and the 60s, which I grew up in. And it makes about as much sense. And the fact that our policymakers, our leaders actually believe this stuff, um, you know, is just, uh, it, it, it's mind boggling. So yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're all in the target hairs here. And, you know, basically, we need to really shut down these, um, you know, uh, this process that we're uh, all being swept up in right now, which is extremely dangerous to us all. Uh, let me make a few counter arguments to uh, this uh, nuclear catastrophe that is voiced by independent experts such as, as you both. So in the mainstream media, it is usually argued that number one, uh, Russia will never use a nuclear bomb um, or, or anything of that sort, because um, even though it's threatening the whole world that it may do so, uh, it would never because it would be the very first country to be affected uh, by a change of direction in the wind um, and be suffering uh, from radioactive waste. That's the first argument. And the second argument that is made is, look, when we were sending um, uh, defensive weapons, uh, people were warning us that uh, this could lead to a nuclear confrontation. Nothing happened. Then we started sending uh, uh, just uh, basic uh, uh, offensive weapons um, and nothing happened. And uh, then advanced weapons and now we can send fighter jets because uh, Russia doesn't react um, to all of this and uh, there's much more room for flexibility. So how do you address these two arguments that are voiced strongly in the German media? Dimitri, let's start with you. Well, first of all, Russia doesn't have to use the nukes close to its border. It might drop one on Washington. It might want to drop one on London. It might drop one on Paris. So uh, I don't know that we should take any solace whatsoever from the idea that you know some of the nuclear fallout might right, might drift back to Russia. Now, having said that, I don't think the Russian government has any desire at all to use nuclear weapons. Uh, but they've said very clearly that if they feel that this state is existentially threatened, that they will do that. And I think if you look at the behavior of the Russian government over the years, it does not generally bluff. It was not bluffing when it said Ukraine's entry into NATO was a red line. Uh, I think that has been proven in abundance. Uh, it was not bluffing when it said that it wouldn't allow uh, the government uh, of Bashar al-Assad in Syria to be overthrown by jihadists who were supported by the West and by its proxies in the Middle East. And we saw how that played out. Uh, and the idea that the Russian government hasn't responded to these constant escalations, I think, is just basically nonsense. It most certainly has. So let's like, let's take an example uh, of the uh, the attack on the Kerch Bridge, which joins uh, mainland Russia to Crimea. 
and was a major piece of infrastructural development following the annexation of Crimea in 2014 that Russia undertook. Uh, the Russian government said this was a red line and it would escalate. Well, guess what it did after it was uh, attacked? It began to systematically destroy the Ukrainian power system almost immediately. And there will be escalations. Now we're talking about there's, there's U.S. military equipment being used by people who have been ad identified even in the Western media as Russian neo-Nazis who have aligned themselves with the Ukrainian government to attack the region of Belgorod. What is the Russian government doing in response to that? It said this was a red line if you use American weapons to attack our territory. It's positioning, apparently, Wagner and Ahmad military forces and commandos in the, re in the Belgorod region to enter into Ukraine and create a buffer zone, actually attacking Ukrainian forces in the north and pushing them back from the Belgorod region, which obviously would entail, and they have the capacity to pull this mission off, which obviously would entail uh, Ukraine losing even more of its territory and suffering far more casualties. So Russia has consistently responded with escalation to our escalations, but it hasn't yet responded with the ultimate escalation. I'm not willing to play Russian roulette for, with the future of our children, and neither should any sane person. Jill, would you like to respond? Yes. Um, it's utterly, you know, and I, I agree with everything Dimitri said, uh, another case in point here is the behavior of the United States when the tables were turned. Remember, we had nuclear bombs in the air uh, that were basically ready to drop uh, that were uh, sort of recirculating um, in position when we discovered that Russian nuclear missiles were in Cuba. So we went into an immediate launch for nuclear war. So we did it. What makes us think that, uh, you know, that Russia would not do it when we've already done it ourselves? And I just heard yesterday that uh, China is uh, working with Cuba on a uh, mutual uh, military training facility in Cuba. I mean, you know, I haven't heard yet what the U.S. response is to this, but you can imagine that uh Plenty of sparks are going to fly, and the U.S. is going to go ballistic about this and will stop at nothing to uh, ward it off. So it's just laughable. The U.S., you know, how are they anything but a bully in the schoolyard when, when they're just, you know, demonstrating such utterly blatant hypocrisy. We can do this, but you can't, you won't, you won't even imagine that you would do it. I mean, our leadership is, uh, what should we say, so uh, corrupt and degenerate and brainless and clueless that, um, what, what can I say? You know, this is just evidence that this uh, rapacious oligarchy has kind of lost its mind. And, you know, that's why that's why I am a political animal, because I've learned in my struggles over the years that you don't solve these things by just, um, you know, narrowly targeting the issue itself. It's really important to address the power structure that enables this kind of you know, Russian roulette to be played with all of our lives. It's absolutely unacceptable. And we have to say no to it and fight uh, for a larger transition. And in my view, fight in concert with other struggles 
for peace and justice because divided we are conquered, but you know, unified we are an unstoppable force. I want to switch gears again and move to some recent military developments taking place in Ukraine. According to British intelligence sources, Ukraine's counter-offensive is progressing very slowly and there's high casualties on both sides, Russian and Ukraine, despite all of the military aid and equipment that Ukraine has received from the Western nations. Ukraine claims it has reconquered several villages, uh, whereas Russia claims to have thwarted large-scale Ukraine counter-offensive. Uh, Dimitri, how do you see this counter-offensive playing out? Will Ukraine be able to take over its lost territories and drive the Russian army out? Let me preface my answer by pointing out that I'm not a military expert. Uh, so uh, whatever I have to say should be, uh, you know, assessed uh, with, with that background. Uh, but uh, every indication that I've seen, and I, I spend far more time than is good for my health, you know, trying to follow the course of this war, um, is that this offensive is a massive failure and a suicide mission, frankly. Uh, the villages that have been taken, uh, as I understand, and it's a very small number of them, are tiny. They are in the gray zone, and they were already abandoned in anticipation of the offensive. And this has to be like the most predictable offensive in the history of offensives. You know, Western powers have been telling us for months, for months, that there was going to be an offensive, and they told us essentially what the target was. The target was to sever the land bridge that Russia has to Crimea in the southeastern part of the country. And sure enough, that's what they did. And the Russians, as has been widely reported, spent six months preparing for this offensive. And there are extraordinarily effective, powerful trench works and fortifications and tank traps and minefields in the very area where this offensive is being pursued right now. And Russia has trained, it is mobilized, it's brought into the battle hundreds of thousands of additional soldiers. And I think the most shocking thing, arguably, about this whole war was that in the lead up to this offensive, uh, there were articles coming out, I believe one in Politico, which said that the success of this offensive would uh, determine Joe Biden's legacy, whether his reputation as someone who was so invested in this war would be saved, vindicated, or ruined. That's what this offensive is actually being conducted for, the reputation of Joe Biden, not for the well-being of the Ukrainian people. As far as I can tell as a non-military expert, the sensible thing to do with those military assets that have been gifted to the Ukrainian government is to put them in defensive positions and prevent any further advances by Russian forces, rather than thrown against this brick wall of Russian resistance, at which point Ukraine will be so weak that it will no longer be able to resist a further advance all the way to the Dnieper River. And the last thing I want to say about this is this nonsense we're being told that all of this weaponry is designed to strengthen the negotiating position of the Ukrainian government. Well, first of all, there's no indication that the West and its proxy in Ukraine have any desire to negotiate at all. But secondly, its negotiating position is getting weaker by the day. It lost Bakhmut. It was the bloodiest, most costly battle of the war to date, and it completely lost that battle. Russia now, and Volodymyr Zelensky himself said that if Russia took Bakhmut, the way was open to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, the last two remaining major communities in the Donbass. So let's be clear here. Let's be real. The offensive actions of the Ukrainian government are weakening its negotiating position. They are military suicide. There's no military logic to them. And they're being done simply 
to try to vindicate the depraved policies of the Biden administration and its Western supporters. Jill, how do you view uh, the recent offensive that is going on? Uh, do you think uh, Ukraine has any chance of uh, driving out the Russian army? Uh, absolutely not. And I agree with everything that uh, Dimitri just said. I don't have a lot to add to that, um, you know, except kind of, you know, the perspective from inside the U.S. that this is part of, of kind of the... Um, Uh, the public relations campaign in anticipation of the uh, 2024 presidential election, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of a zombie election. And uh, Biden is being propped up as someone who must be protected from debates, who, you know, cannot be trusted to put a sentence together, let alone uh, defend his foreign policy and the fact that, you know, the Democratic Party is rallying around him uh, and just, you know, mindlessly pursuing this, uh, this election strategy just reflects again on how uh, really degenerate our ruling structure is. Uh, the Democrats who have long pretended to be the lesser evil um, you know, are leading the charge into war, nuclear war, censorship, uh, have betrayed labor, have abandoned their promises on the climate and um, uh, on, on health care, for example. So it's just, you know, another indication of what a shambles our political system is in, which has been hijacked by not only the uh, war profiteers, but every other, you know, major uh, industry, powerful economic force out there, it's really become a laughing stock increasingly once you are outside of the echo chamber of, of um, the political establishment. Our political system is is a laughing stock among among its own people, and I would just add a very encouraging poll I saw the other day, which is like completely unprecedented. Not only have people been shedding their political affiliations over the course of many years, but now you know to where uh, those who identify as independents are, you know, a substantial majority. But a recent poll done by um, Uh, the Economist and YouGov.com uh, showed that now the those who are you know who say they would seriously consider voting outside of the duopoly, the corporate uh, you know parties of war on Wall Street, that's now at 45%. Those who say they would not consider such a thing is now down to 25%. So the tables are really turning. We're in a very dynamic um, you know political moment right now, and it's. Uh, in the words of Alice Walker, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. There's a lot of political power out there right now, which is kind of looking for um, a vehicle to attach to. And, and whether you're fighting on the war or you're fighting for a more transformative uh, change to put power back in the hands of people and out of the hands of rapacious oligarchs, um, You know, it's a it's a time to just really stand up and and persevere and not take their propaganda at face value and to know really what a what a joke you think it's a joke and guess what most other people do too. 
Uh, Russian President Putin uh, was uh, recently visiting, visiting the African continent and at the African Union uh, conference uh, he stated that he is open for uh, negotiations as long as the security interests of all actors are taken into account. Um, some argue though um, that it is impossible at this point politically uh, to uh, up for negotiations because the price that Ukraine has paid uh, from all the atrocities and even on the Russian side the price that their soldiers have paid it is politically impossible for uh, Russia or Ukraine to come to a consensus and have some sort of negotiate settlement. Uh, Dimitri, do you think uh, this uh, sort of position is true? First of all when People are dying by the hundreds of thousands, and the future of humanity is being periled by a potential nuclear exchange between these military behemoths. I think, at a bare minimum, we have an obligation to try. You know, we have an obligation, and this is just what any sane, rational person would do given the stakes. You would sit down at the table and see where the discussion leads. But amazingly, the depraved lunatics, and I couldn't agree more with Jill's comments on the absolutely appalling level of leadership we're seeing in the West today. I mean, we really have the the, 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 the lunatics have taken over the asylum. I'm sorry. Uh, and these people won't even sit down at the table and have a discussion with Vladimir Putin. There was a discussion that took place uh, reportedly uh, very early on in, in the, in the, uh, after the invasion uh, where it was mediated, as I recall, by the Turkish uh, government and also the Israeli government was involved. And they came very close, according to uh, many reports, to striking a deal, which would not have involved, as I understand it, the ceding of those four oblasts in southeastern Ukraine to Russia. And what happened, according to Naftali Bennett, uh, the U.S. and British government stopped it. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson has been widely reported by those who actually want to know the truth, flew off to Kiev while these negotiations were happening. And he's reported by the Ukrainian media to have told Zelensky that if he did a deal, it would not be supported by the West, and that if he didn't do a deal, they would arm him to the teeth and give him the means necessary uh, to defeat the Russian Federation, which is, of course, a pipe dream. Uh, so uh, we actually came close to a peace deal, which could have been done, I believe, on better terms than would be available to the government of Ukraine now. But why wouldn't we at least sit down and try? All wars involve horrific violence, atrocities, Yet all wars eventually come to an end. Somehow people sit at the table, even in South Africa, where, you know, the black population, the indigenous population was subjected to apartheid for decades, a brutal, monstrous apartheid system. They managed to negotiate with their enemies, sit down and move on and create a relatively prosperous and democratic country without uh continuing any, any bloodshed, even even without even achieving bloodshed on a massive scale. Even in that context, they were able to sit down at the table with their mortal enemies and negotiate a peace. We can do that here. It behooves us to try. And it is the height of irresponsibility that our governments won't even try. Jill, in your view, is it possible politically to still uh, hammer out a deal uh, given the price that both countries have paid? Well, the key word there is politically. <laughs> and I would say, you know, this again is a symptom of our degenerate 
lunatic political system. And I think our leaders may be speaking for themselves when they say it's just not possible to negotiate peace. And that's another reason why, you know, to put it bluntly, the bums need to be thrown out. Um, because if, you know, if the interests of everyday people uh, and our current generations, let alone our future generations, uh, is to count at all, you know, they are the ones whose will should be implemented here, not those who profit from their investments in the, uh, you know, in the in the war industry and, and the weapons industry. And, you know, the weapons industry is famous for its, you know, its $2.5 billion worth of, I think, lobbying expenses in the past, is it 10 years, something like that. But, you know, they throw a lot of money into this, which goes especially to the heads of committees that control these budgets. And so, you know, they have enormous vested interest in continuing to prop up this system. So, of course, they're not going to, you know, uh, who was it? Um, uh, I forget the name of the uh, novelist who said, you know, you can't teach a man something when his uh, livelihood depends on not knowing it, you know, and that's that's kind of like the fog that these uh, these so-called, mis- I would call them misleaders, are operating in. So they may be incapable, but we the people are not. And if that reasoning hold, held true, that because you're losing, you can never negotiate, there would never be an end to any war. And to my mind, the uh, the possibilities here are transformed. The minute everyday people begin to understand that we are all in uh, in the crosshairs here. This is not a conflict somewhere else because the reality of nuclear weapons and nuclear winter, all wars now, especially those between superpowers, are effectively global and they are happening in your backyard and they could just blow you to smithereens here um, and starve you to death uh, in a moment. That's really where we are. And once people realize this is us we're talking about, it's not those poor Ukrainians or those foolish Russians. It's it's every one of us is at stake here. And then suddenly the whole the whole ball of wax changes when people realize that we are all victims of of where we're we're already victims right now, just in terms of you know the two-thirds of our budget that is basically being spent on either militarism abroad or its you know, it's contamination here at home in terms of our security agencies and the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and all that and the Department of Injustice, the amount of money that's drained so that we are not, uh, you know, uh, keeping children out of poverty. Uh, We're throwing, you know, huge numbers of people off of basic um, food stamps, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, we're not renewing um, emergency housing uh, protections and eviction uh, moratoriums and things like that. None of that, you know, this facade of a um, uh, debt ceiling uh, proposal was really just an austerity, uh, a vehicle for austerity. There was nothing, you know, it was all about raising the spending for the military and and cutting it effectively when you consider the cost of inflation. Um, expenses on human needs are being cut substantially uh, across the board and then specific programs that are being defunded as well uh, while 
you know, the military is going crazy. This is not about constraining the debt. It's really about refunneling our tax dollars into the hands of the uh, war profiteers and putting our lives on the firing line while we're at it. And as people begin to understand the actual stakes of this um, emergency that we are in, the discussion is really going to change in a big way. I want to finish this interview uh, with something we talked about off camera, about the activities that uh, is happening uh, in your political lives. Jill, you mentioned Cornel West uh, joined the Green Party. And Dimitri, you mentioned you're on a speaking tour. Uh, let us start with Jill. Um, uh, talk about uh, Cornel West joining uh, the Green Party um, and running uh, for president and what this means. Uh, and what are you? what is your role in all of this? Um, so Cornel West had launched a presidential campaign uh, not that long ago, it seems like years, but uh, it was uh, like a week and a half ago, something like that, maybe two weeks at most. Uh, he launched his presidential campaign uh, initially with the People's Party. And um, I think, you know, he didn't quite, because he hasn't really had a lot of political experience, a lot of policy experience and a lot of organizing experience, but not really within uh, the, you know, conventional forms of political combat and didn't realize how much basically he needed a party that could actually get him on the ballot while still supporting, you know, an agenda uh, for peace and justice outside of the, you know, in his words, seeking to break the back of the duopoly, you know, just break the duopoly. It's over and it's time to really challenge it. Um, so he began to understand uh, why the Greens, um, you know, just had an enormous, uh, you know, benefit to offer in terms of our experience actually doing ballot access, having a fair number of ballot lines, almost half uh, the number that we need uh, to start with and so on. So he announced very rather suddenly, well, I should say, uh, after some of us Greens talked to each other and saw an interview in particular on Democracy Now!, where he was kind of blindsided by some of these practical considerations. Um, I called uh, Chris Hedges and uh, Chris agreed. And, you know, and Chris has kind of been an advisor to um, Cornell all along. And we all talked on the phone the following day, along with Ajamu uh, Baraka, uh, who was uh, my running mate uh, in 2016. And it, you know, really didn't take convincing. It was like, there is a practical uh, option here that can really elevate this campaign to the level of, um, you know, uh, competition and visibility and uh, credibility that this needs, you know, this is really that transformative moment that we have been um, uh, building towards. And for someone of Cornell's stature and um, eloquence to come forward as a spokesperson, uh, really as a leader for this transformation is just like amazing. And I keep saying to myself, wow, am, am I dreaming? Has this really happened? So I'm very involved in kind of the acute rush right now to fully transition that campaign. It takes, you know, weeks, months 
to develop the infrastructure for campaign. And so we are really on fast forward right now to develop an, an alternative infrastructure. But meanwhile, Cornell just keeps going because he's, you know, he's on autopilot. He's a really powerful voice and he's, you know, he's being covered by the media all over the place. People are flocking uh, to his website. You know, we have about 250 volunteers right now, just in the last few days, uh, just to do ballot access, you know, and thousands of volunteers who are signing up. And the URL for that is cornellwest24.com. And I'd say, you know, join the, um, join the team. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Dimitri, talk about uh, your uh, tour that you're making, speaking tour you were talking about. I, I want to say, first of all, that uh, I think that uh, Dr. West's emergence as a, uh, a nominee for the Green Party is the most exciting thing to happen in Western politics in the last six or seven years. Really have to go back to the, you know, when when Jill and Ajamu ran, uh, you know, I was very inspired by that campaign. Uh, Dr. West is an extraordinary candidate. It's not just the American people who would benefit tremendously from him making a strong run. Everybody in the West uh, would benefit, everybody in the world would benefit from a strong run by Cornel West and his being nominated as the, the Green Party candidate. Uh, you know, and I, I can't vote in the United States. Uh, I'm not a US citizen. I can't contribute politically, but I'm more than happy to give my time and energy to the Cornel West campaign, as should we all. Um, here north of the border, uh, when I returned from uh, Russia uh, recently, uh, peace groups around the country, principally the Hamil Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, uh, arguably the leading peace group in Canada, they put together a national speaking tour about the Ukraine war, and uh, uh, it focuses on the concept of citizen di diplomacy. Uh, and what I learned in my trip to Russia and how we might find peace and a way out of this terrible mess we're in. Uh, I started the tour uh, in my hometown of London, Ontario, two nights ago last night. Uh, I'm here in Hamilton today. That's where I spoke last night. Mm. Uh, and I'll be in Toronto tomorrow, and I'll be in nine more Canadian cities between now uh, and uh, early July, including uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Regina, Winnipeg, Montreal, Ottawa, Halifax, and Fredericton. Uh, and so far, we've had a really great turnout. Uh, the level of enthusiasm I've seen uh, is really been inspiring and moving and makes me feel that this is more than worth it. We also had 25 people show up last night who are very strong supporters of the Ukrainian government. Uh, and they wanted to make themselves heard and they did, but we actually had a respectful conversation. And I welcome that. I think it's important to have this dialogue. Uh, so if you're in Canada, you have the opportunity to attend one of these events. I encourage you to come out whether or not you agree with what I've had to say. Dimitri Laskaris, Jill Stein, it was a pleasure to have you both on the show. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honor. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in today. An important announcement. We are currently in our summer break. Uh, not a lot of videos will be coming out for the next two to three weeks, as you must have noticed. Uh, so please bear with us, because as soon as the summer is over, we will be picking up on producing three to four videos every week. And if you're watching this video, make sure to subscribe to our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. YouTube, which is owned by Google, has a long history of shadow banning and censoring our content. So we're asking all our viewers as a precaution to join us on these alternative channels. And if you want us to continue with our independent and nonprofit uh, journalism, make sure to donate via Patreon, PayPal, or our bank account. I'm your host, Zain Raza. See you guys next time.